You're listening to the Diplomats Asia Geopolitics Podcast. I'm your co-host, Catherine Pat, coming to you from Washington, D.C. And this is Ankit Panda, also from Washington, D.C. How you doing, Ankit? Good, Katie. Uh, hasn't been too long, but good to be back. We got a lot to talk about today. We do. We are we are back with the other major summit, obviously uh, not as important as China and Central Asia, but we are going to talk about the G7 summit today, uh, which uh, took place over the weekend in Hiroshima, Japan. Uh, Japan was the host of the summit. Uh, Ankit, what should we? What should? What are the major takeaways from this summit? Sure. So I think. There were a lot of expectations going into this G7. Uh, Kishida, uh, Prime Minister Kishida of Japan, had uh, sort of indicated his agenda for a while. Uh, obviously, the fact that the summit was taking place in Hiroshima, precisely at a moment when Russia's been issuing nuclear threats, was a big focus. So one of the outcomes, for instance, is this new uh, Hiroshima vision on nuclear disarmament, which was issued by the G7 leaders on, on May 19th, uh, which is an interesting statement. Uh, there's a lot on China. Uh, we sort of look at how the G7 has handled China over the last few years, and there's a clear trend line. Uh, the the G7 communique in 2021 mentioned China four times and then 14 times last year in 2022, and now we're up to 20. Uh, and uh, the big takeaway for me on China is uh, effectively the G7 formally adopting, in a way, the, quote, de-risking framing of managing uh, economic competition with China. I think the way to think about de-risking is that it's somewhat of a substitute for what folks had been calling decoupling, uh, in that it's meant to be less absolute in what it communicates to uh, the global South and the outside world about the G7 countries' intentions regarding China. Th the idea is not to completely... Uh, decouple, as it were, but to uh, manage the kinds of risks that come from economic exposure to China, including the risk of economic coercion. We can talk a little bit about the background here, Katie. It's basically, I think, the way I see it, it's it's a somewhat of a compromise between the United States and um, the European members of the G7 and Japan, who have a somewhat different set of concerns when it comes to managing the economic relationship with China. Um there was also, I think, uh, a lot that happened outside of the G7 itself. Uh, there was a U.S.-Australia summit, right? On the last podcast, we talked about how Biden ended up canceling his trip to Australia, um, but he was still able to meet Prime Minister Albanese of Australia uh, in Hiroshima. Uh, there was a quad summit as well, uh, which, again, on the last episode, we talked about how that was supposed to happen in Australia, and Biden shortened his trip. But the quad leaders were still able to meet uh, in Hiroshima briefly, uh, and they announced this pretty interesting agreement on uh, undersea cable security uh, as part of the Quad's broader commitment to a free and open Indo-Pacific. So that's kind of the top-line overview of some of the things that really stuck out to me uh, about the G7. I wouldn't say I was necessarily uh, surprised by too much. Well, perhaps the surprise that I guess caught a lot of people off guard was um, President Zelensky of Ukraine showing up in person to Hiroshima. There were some rumors that he would do that. It was announced about a day before he actually got there. Uh, but his presence there was certainly a show stealer. Uh, and, um, you know, I guess there was a deep degree of symbolism, I thought, to Zelensky kind of speaking in Hiroshima, right? Hiroshima is somewhat synonymous, of course, with the first use of an atomic weapon in war. But if anything, Hiroshima also stands for resilience uh, and the ability to rebuild. I mean, it's a, it's a vibrant city today, despite having been flattened by the United States in 1945. And so having Zelensky in Hiroshima right as um, he was getting some particularly bleak news from the battlefield back home, I think, uh, also also stands out. 
So a little bit of a long-winded answer for you there, Katie, but those were some of the things that jumped out to me. I'm wondering if, uh, you know, anything there kind of uh, draws a reaction from your end. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was certainly a, an interesting summit and came at a quite momentous time. Uh, we reflected last week when we talked about the China-Central Asia summit that, you know, while China and Central Asia were meeting, the G7 was about to meet and Russia was in attendance at neither of these meetings. Obviously, it wouldn't be invited to the first one. Uh, and as of 2014, is no longer a member of the what had been the G8, now the G7 club. Um, you know, so I, I was interested to see Zelensky show up at the summit. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're sort of hearing not great news from Bakhmut, for example. But, you know, there was definitely a lot of symbolism that um, I do want to come back to this idea of the de-risking as a sort of more sellable version of decoupling. Is that is that an accurate way to kind of interpret that? Because it, it's sort of we've, for years we've been talking about decoupling um, and, and the concerns that that idea, meaning sort of detaching from China in particular, uh, that causes concern in the, in the quote unquote global south. Um, how is this de-risking framework a little bit of a, a, an easier pitch? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 sort of an exercise in branding, I think, right? I think I think some folks in the Biden administration would disagree with my framing of decoupling and de-risking as being two fundamentally opposed ideas. But I think from the perspective of Paris and, and Berlin and Tokyo, I think de-risking is a lot more palatable. Uh, decoupling in sort of the most extreme frame, I think, is just impractical, uh, the complete disintegration of the Chinese economy uh, from the United States, from the advanced democracies in the G7 uh, just hasn't been seen as, as practical. And so the de-risking framing, I think, helps clarify some of what the G7 countries are more comfortable about. And here, I think, you know, I should also mention uh, this was the first G7 summit where we got a completely standalone statement on um, economic resilience and economic security, uh, right? This has been framed in some press reports as part of the G7's counter-economic coercion uh, agenda, basically depriving China of the ability to coerce these countries by virtue of the interlinkages that exist economically. So uh, this statement has a lot on resilient supply chains, which of course has been a theme for several years now, uh, something that really cropped up during the Trump administration, accelerated during uh, the COVID years, uh, and continues to remain relevant. There's a focus on resiliency in critical infrastructure across the G7 countries, responding to non-market policies and securing global economic resilience. Uh, and then the statement includes a whole section on economic coercion. And um, this one is it's pretty interesting. I think there's a lot that's said here that I think still needs kind of fleshing out in detail about how how the countries are going to go about doing this. So, you know, the, the statement acknowledges, for instance, the importance of existing joint efforts at the World Trade Organization to limit anti-competitive practices and coercive practices. Uh, but the G7 will be launching a coordination platform on economic coercion. And this, you know, I'm, I'm just reading the statement here. It says this will increase our collective assessment, preparedness, deterrence and response to economic coercion and further promote cooperation with partners beyond the G7. I think it remains to be seen how that will practically come to come to fruition. Uh, but there's a lot here on uh, economic competition and economic governance. I think that's definitely a, a big takeaway from uh, the last couple of days in Hiroshima. Um, now, uh, my sort of next question for you, Ankit, you know, there were a number of uh, guests invited by Kishida to also attend the summit. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned Australia already, but India, Brazil, South Korea, Vietnam, Indonesia, Comoros, and the Cook Islands. Um, 
what do you make of that that group being invited? Is this it, maybe I'm just not remembering the last G7 summit? Is this normal to sort of invite an array of other countries to come, or or was this something that's new and should be remarked upon? Um, so you know there have been outside leaders that have participated in the past. I want to say the scope this time is 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 larger. At least it seems larger to me. But uh, listeners shouldn't quote me on that. Uh, it's possible that there have been more leaders in the past. Um, but obviously there's a certain amount of overlap here with other minilateral arrangements, right? Uh, South Korea's inclusion is rather unsurprising given the um, somewhat accelerating trilateral cooperation between the United States, Japan, and South Korea. Uh, Kishida had also just gone to Seoul uh, earlier this month. And so, uh, you know, inviting Yoon to the G7 uh, was, was something that I think was rather logical. Uh, India and Australia, important quad partners for the United States and Japan. And so their presence, I think, is explained through that framing. Uh, Comoros is the chairperson in 2023 of the African Union. Uh, Brazil is the chairperson of the Amazon Cooperation Treaty Organization and uh, obviously a major regional actor in Latin America. Uh, and similarly, Vietnam and Indonesia are uh, have been two important partners for the United States and Japan in Southeast Asia and have uh, tremendous relevance within ASEAN there. So I think I think there's basically an intention here to have uh, the G7 not really just be seen as this club of advanced democracies, which is, of course, what the organization is, but also that uh, the G7 is, in a way, consulting with um, members of the global south and, and so-called non-aligned countries uh, as it sort of moves ahead on uh, its own priorities. So I think that's the, that's the general rationale behind uh, including these countries here. Uh, and, and of course, you know, there's a lot that I didn't mention that uh, becomes relevant to many of these countries. You know, there was uh, there was discussions of climate and climate resiliency on environmental issues, uh, on energy. So um, having this broader array of countries participate, I think, makes sense when viewed through that frame as well. Great. Um, and then I wanted to return to the mention of the quad. Obviously, we can't really talk about a full quad summit because that didn't happen. Um, but you mentioned an under undersea cables uh, agreement. Now, I, I think for some listeners, maybe undersea cables are a little bit obscure. Um, but I, I know in the last several months, there have been, uh, in particular, Taiwan, uh, I believe, uh, some undersea cables that were accidentally or on purpose cut. Uh, and and that, that can be really important to island nations in particular, but also just for global connectivity. So maybe if you could give us a little bit on why this agreement is interesting uh, or important. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess I kind of found it interesting because it sort of comes out of left field. I mean, not that that's really surprising when it comes to the Quad, right? I think the the general background here is that under the Biden administration, the Quad has sort of explicitly become desecuritized to sort of push back against the accusations from China and other places mm. that the Quad is something like an Asian NATO, which it absolutely is not. And so all of the Quad working groups uh, and, and sort of um, Quad priorities and deliverables have been so far on vaccines, on, on climate, on space, uh, and now on undersea cables. And, and the statement, the Quad statement at the G7, uh, basically points out that this is part of um, improving infrastructure resiliency in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, it's it's a short paragraph uh, in uh, in the joint statement, and I think that's uh, certainly an interesting area for the Quad to push ahead. The statement cites the Quad countries' world-class expertise in manufacturing, delivering, and maintaining cable infrastructure. Uh, so I'll be very curious to see uh, how this practically comes to pass, right? It's, it's very possible that we get this Quad joint, uh, joint statement that alludes to undersea cables, but then, um, practically speaking, it takes a while for the quad to actually um, 
deliver uh, on on something relating to this. But nevertheless, I think it's quite interesting. The quad statement is also very long and very wide ranging. Uh, it's, it's sort of, a, I guess, a perfect parallel in a way to the G7 statement in that it addresses many of the same issues, uh, including on on regional governance in the Indo-Pacific and um, is basically described as a vision statement. So I'm guessing a lot of this, of course, was intended for the original Quad Summit in Australia, but having the ability to meet in Hiroshima still allowed the leaders to push out this uh, vision statement here. So uh, yeah, a lot, lot still going on with the Quad, but um, you know, I, I thought the undersea cables thing was a really, uh, really interesting outcome there. Yeah, I, I do think I, I do think you're onto something uh, when you said that the Quad is trying to sort of address issues that are maybe not as threatening to China in, in an obvious way. Um, it just a, maybe is just sort of a branding um, effort. Um, but I, I don't know that that's gonna necessarily, undersea cables are gonna change anybody's mind about what they already think about the quad is. Uh, but I think it would be interesting to kind of tally up, you know, which which areas uh, they've addressed and which ones maybe, maybe they haven't. Um, I think before we close out, we should maybe come back to uh, Zelensky and the Russia question. Um, and then maybe maybe also talk a little bit about North Korea if that popped up at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious how Zelensky was received, you know, what kind of new commitments uh, maybe Ukraine's gotten from from the quote unquote West uh, after the G7. Well, the big news uh, on the Ukraine front is uh, the F-16 issue with Biden sort of saying that mm-hmm. the U.S. would be open to um, third countries uh, giving Ukraine F-16 fighters and that the United States would uh, potentially uh, be willing to train Ukrainian pilots. And so I think that was a welcome moment. I think it's also part of Zelensky's broader public diplomacy campaign in support of Ukraine. He's been doing this a lot, um, less less so in person, more so virtually, but obviously showing up to the G7 in person. Uh, you know, he had a press conference. I think it's really part of Ukraine's ongoing campaign to make sure uh, that the war doesn't fall off the front pages and that uh, Zelensky can continue to keep the spotlight on Ukraine. I think he certainly succeeded uh, in um, uh, in Hiroshima. Um, just briefly, before getting to North Korea, I just want to say a little bit on, on the nuclear disarmament vision, because that was really interesting. Uh, obviously, mm-hmm. it's a it's a particularly difficult time, I think, for the G7 to realistically push forward the cause of nuclear disarmament, given the growing salience of nuclear weapons, uh, particularly by countries like uh, Russia, North Korea, uh, and even China, which is undertaking a nuclear buildup. Um, but this statement is really interesting. It, it sort of comes to grips with some of the factual negative trend lines in uh, insofar as nuclear weapons are concerned. Um, but there's a clear sort of condemnation of, of Russian nuclear threats, a call on China to be more transparent and engage in dialogue concerning its nuclear arsenal. There's... Um, regret about Russia's decision to recently uh, undermine the New START treaty with the United States and return to implementing that treaty. Uh, and yes, uh, the you know, the this um, vision statement and the uh, G7 joint statement both address North Korea. I'll be honest with you, Katie, the North Korea language uh, feels a little phoned in to me. It's sort of, you know, if you had ChatGPT sort of write a G7 statement on North Korea, I'm sure you'd get very similar language. Uh, not much has changed on North oh, Korea, no. <laughs> and everybody I think acknowledges that very little is likely to happen in the in the short term. So, basically, you know, the G7 says that North Korea will never have the status of a nuclear weapon state under the NPT, and North Korea must abandon its nuclear programs uh, in a complete, verifiable, and irreversible way. 
in, you know, in line with relevant UN Security Council resolutions. So it's basically a laundry list of all the concerns the G7 states have uh, about North Korea. Uh, what's telling, of course, uh, well, I don't know if it's an of course, but I thought it was interesting that the North Korea and Iran paragraphs were just kind of mashed together in uh, in the Hiroshima vision on, on nuclear disarmament. I don't know if there's kind of a sense of foreboding there about where things are going with Iran. Um, but that, too, I think sort of speaks to just how low expectations are right now on both Iran and North Korea. Um, I think we probably hit the major ones uh, today. I know there's other things we could talk about. Katie, but uh, anything else before we close out? No, I think I think you you address the major points. Um, I guess the only thing I'd add is the the it is interesting to sort of put North Korea uh, and, and Iran next to each other as a as a small part of this larger agenda. But I think that goes to illustrate just how big of an agenda the G seven has when it you look at the global scope of its interests. You know, you start to. Uh, try to highlight areas where there can, where work can be done, uh, and then there's North Korea. Yeah, no, there's a yeah, there's certainly a lot. Uh, it, it would actually be a really interesting exercise to just go through all of the uh, bilateral and minilateral and G7 statements that came out this weekend and just tally up the total word count. I mean, it was a bonanza for folks that enjoy reading diplomatic uh, releases. Uh, there were just so many joint statements and vision statements and uh, so on and so forth. So yeah, definitely. A very active week for um, regional symmetry and diplomacy. Uh, I think uh, Japan will be particularly pleased with the legacy of this G7 summit. Um, but yeah, I think uh, that kind of wraps it up for today. Uh, so yeah, we'll definitely keep an eye out. Uh, I think um, probably the next thing we'll talk about, Katie, is the Shangri-La dialogue because I'll be I'll be heading off to Singapore <laughs> soon, and certainly always looking forward to um, reflecting on regional defense diplomacy. We have a bit of a U.S.-China angle there, of course, with the U.S. sanctions on the Chinese defense minister precluding a potential person um, uh, one-on-one meeting, uh, which has been the case at at past in-person Shangri-La. So that would, I think, uh, augur poorly for the U.S.-China relationship going forward. Uh, But anyways, uh, Katie, thanks a lot for joining me today. Thank you very much, Ankit. And uh, to our listeners, if you haven't had a chance yet, please leave us a review wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Uh, Recommend us to your friends. And please, please get in touch with Ankit or myself. Uh, We're both on Twitter. We have email addresses that are pretty easy to find. Uh, If you have any suggestions for the show, we're always happy to take those into consideration. Have a great rest of your week, Ankit, and I'll, uh, I'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon, Katie. Goodbye.